Uh, hey, remember Otis Spunkmeyer muffins? Oh, Otis. Got me through a lot of days, man. When we set up Wilson in uh, 06, we lived off of like whatever kind of shit bag they would send to us. And then we kind of got burnt where they didn't send us the good ones. We kind of got like the, uh, the banana, uh, the banana nut. And, uh, I, I can't even look at banana nut uh, <laughs> muffins anymore. Those things are radioactive, man. Oh, they are, man. They're like, you, you look at them, they got like a shelf life of like 27 years. Uh, <laughs> no preservatives, though. They're really healthy for you. Um, but 1,400 calories. Yeah. So you can just smash one of those down and you're good for the day with a you know, <laughs> case of water. and you're, you're good. You need a case of water. Well, yeah. Canada's secret weapon. Oh, this smoke fire Macho. And I'm Matt. And this is episode three of Veteran X. Today on the podcast, we have my friend Sergeant Ian Tate. Sergeant Tate served with the 2nd Battalion Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry on four tours in Afghanistan uh, in 2006 with Bravo Company and 2008 on my tour as the CO's gunner. In 2011, he returned to Kabul as a correspondent for Army News and then again in Kabul in 2013. Sergeant Tate lives uh, with his son and his pregnant wife in Brandon, Manitoba, and that's where he joins us from today. So, Ian, uh, how long you been out, man? Oh, I got out uh, January 2017, so I've been out just, uh, what's that, uh, 16 months, a year and a bit, year and a quarter around there. How did it feel like when you uh, first found out that you were going to have to get out of the military? I kind of seen the writing on the wall um but still being told it was uh it was heartbreaking you know because i put a lot of time and effort into it and you know i really enjoyed serving i really enjoyed the people i served with and uh, at the time i loved my job or loved the guys i was around so it was uh it was a big kick uh kicking us in the guts you know like i still think about it you know most days like man i wish i was still in and then i go talk to some of my buddies that are still in and i'm like man i'm glad i'm out and then (laughs) and then the next day it's kind of the same thing you know i i I miss it but uh it was uh kind of you know at my age um because i was what 30 38 when i was told that uh yeah you're you're losing your job you you don't have a job anymore uh, you're out of the military, and the clock starts ticking now to kind of get your priorities straight and figure out what you want to do with your life. So it's been uh, it's been quite a struggle. Um, the first few months were very tough on me, yeah. and um, I think once I got accepted in this, kind of changed my outlook because like kind of in limbo, like not sure not sure what I want to do or what kind of person I am you now, and. Uh, what kind of options are open for me? So it's it's been uh, it's been tough. Um, things are much better now than they were, you know, in, in 2017. But uh, you know, it's just that initial, you know, especially if you've been in for a while, uh, you know, that's all you've done, and you put your uh, heart and soul and your life into a into a job, and then have that uh, taken from you, um, not because of something that you've done, it's losing their job for having a natural reaction to unnatural things it's harsh that's eh? the best way i can look at it so it was, it was pretty harsh man it's a pretty harsh pill to uh to swallow 
I did what 15 years in the army, uh, four tours to Afghanistan uh, as an infantryman with uh, with the second battalion. Um, so it feels like they got what they wanted out of me, and then just kind of kicking to the curb, and uh, it sucks. You know, it was pretty harsh, but uh, life has to go on, right? Just one day I woke up and said, "Hey, you know what? This is what it is, and uh, I got to move on." So, Ian, uh, about that sort of first year going to Civvy Street, if uh, if we could explore that in some more detail, whatever you're comfortable sharing. So you you went to school, right? And uh, yep. how was that? How was dealing with, you know, civvies, uh, other relationships in terms of friendships or your family? Um, I think going to school, honestly, um, I'm not going to say save me because I don't think I was in any, any real danger to myself. Uh, maybe the way I was living and going about things might not have been the healthiest way to do things, but I don't think I was in any... any uh, kind of physical danger to myself but uh getting the shot to go to school uh yeah i was only an eight month program i did the uh police studies program uh, hoping to get in with cbsa or maybe looking at uh, probation services or conservation and all that other stuff everything's gonna determine how i heal after my hip surgery um but in that kind of course um again you're surrounded i'd like to say with like-minded people um, for the most part, most parts, you got a lot of young, young guys that are young people that are striving to serve their community or, or serve a higher, you know, a higher, or have a higher purpose, I guess, with wanting to get into law enforcement. So there's a lot of similarities between the military. Um, there was some similarities and then things completely a 180, right? It's like not similar at all. Uh, I struggled with, the mentality of some of the kids, you know, again, coming from say our background, right guys, you know, where it's always, you know, a uh, team is everything. Everybody's uh, in it together. And then the school side, you know, a lot of civilians, kids have never served. It's not their fault, but they don't understand or they don't get that concept that we were, you know, that was driven into us that yeah. uh, one for all kind of thing. And so it was, it was, um, a little bit of struggles. It's it still kind of is because there's a lot of lot of blades, a lot of a lot of guys were uh, chucking knives at each other and stuff like that. And I just kind of stood back and just kind of kept my mouth shut the best I could. I was trying trying to be a guy, but it's pretty tough when you're 40 years old and you're surrounded by 18, 19 year old guys. And uh, I got that awesome tag of um, like course senior for the whole fucking course. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I did the best I could to stay away from that. Um, I did not want anything to do with it. I just kind of a backbencher of helping, uh, helping the guy out that was the uh, course senior. And then, of course, he gets picked up by the RCMP. He goes to depot. And um, now my instructor's like, I need you to step up and do this for me. In all honesty, I think it was a good experience. And it, it um, tuned me in that, um, I don't know, I can do a lot of things. Mm. You know, from going from like losing your job, right, to kind of feeling like a piece of shit to like, hey, man, I can do this. Oh, yeah. A lot of people turn, um, you know, inside when it comes to dealing with their mental health. And I know you've come like a super long way, right? But in the beginning, a lot of people tend to lean on like drinking and drugs or whatever. You know, did you Mm -hmm. find that like that like drinking was tough to, you know, was something that you struggled with? Yeah, for sure. Um, it's something I struggled 
with, you know, for, for a lot of my career, it was just, it was there. Um, no one held my hand and told me to do it. It was just, it's what we did, right? Um, a lot of us would do that, right? We go, say, on exercise or we go work our bags off for a couple of months and then you get a week off and it's like, okay, what do you want to do for the week, guys? Let's go fish and let's go drink and let's go do this and let's go do that. And it's just, uh, it's habit forming, right? Because then it just becomes too easy to come home after a bad day and you know, rip into a, a case or, you know, grab a bottle and, you know, drink yourself stupid and, and then get up in the morning and go for a 10K run and do it all over again. It's true. You know, that's that, that was the reality of what we did in the infantry or, you know, what some of us did. So it was it was a struggle and just kind of getting off of that, right, or getting out of that kind of um, environment. Right on. So, Ian, let's talk about your deployment. Uh, what years in rotos were you on? Uh, my first one was in, uh, I was on 106. I was with B Company. Um, I was with uh, Weapons Debt uh, Company headquarters. So that was from January to August 2006. Uh, then I was on 108. And that was from, I got there in February. And I think I got home in September. I was with uh, Combat Support with his Niner TAC. Uh, the CO is Gunner. So I worked with the CO. And in 2011, I went for a month and a half or so just to Kandahar with Army News when I got that gig with Public Affairs. So I went and did uh, a bunch of stories when they were closing out the mission. And then I went back to Kabul in 2013. So, What was it like going back after your two combat tours? Um... 2011, like when I went there with public affairs, to me it was kind of, um, it closed a lot of wounds that I had open. I think it was a good thing. Um, you know, some of the stories we did, you know, I was there for the last remembrance day in Kandahar. Um, got to see them take down the memorial, you know, got to see some of my friends get uh, taken off the memorial and, and uh, packaged up to go home. Um, so that was a that was a lot of closure for me, actually. Um, I regret going in 13. I think 2013 was a huge mistake uh, for me to go. Why? Because uh, it opened up everything that I have closed. And, you know, I was starting to move on. Life was looking pretty damn good in 2011. Um, you know, uh, and then go back in 13 and just kind of everything that I was dealing with was just kind of put right back out front. You know, uh Kabul is a completely different animal than Kandahar, but, you know, out in a boat all every day where, you know, doing, I was doing convoy escorts and stuff like that. It was a pretty good gig, but you're still out in a boat and you're, you're seeing the stuff that, uh, you are trying to forget about, you know, or just putting it back in mind, right? Like my PTSD, um, evolves more around the, people that couldn't protect themselves yeah and a failure on or what i used to think was a failure on my part and our part uh, not to protect these women and children and, and people that couldn't protect themselves from the uh from the monsters that live live with them right the, the bad guys um that's where most of my effect is from you know yeah i miss my friends that got killed you know i uh I miss them dearly yeah um, knew that my life could have been taken at any given second uh, over there, but I was, you know, I was willing to, um, 
willing to sacrifice myself for kind of the betterment of, of the world, really, as corny as it sounds. Um, I mean, that's why we get into it, right? Yeah, exactly, right? It, it's, it's what kind of draws us to that kind of job. And, and, uh, and then all the BS comes later. Yeah, exactly, right? You don't you don't think about that stuff. It was just like it just crushed me to see, you know, like women and children fucking dead and and people getting blown up and shit and uh you know, it sucked. And then going back to Kabul in 13 to see the difference between, you know, the two the two environments is like night and day, but you still have you know, women standing on the side of the road with their dead kids in their hand and shit like that in Kabul. And it's like, wow, man, like, and then seeing like that and then look across the street and there's a multi, multi-million dollar complex being built. Man. So it's like in Kandahar, we, we didn't, we've seen a lot of wasted wastage of money um, with the coalition. Like we knew we were getting ripped off by the drug lords and the warlords and all the rest of that stuff and the government of Afghanistan. We knew that but you don't really see it until you go to Kabul. Right. Yeah, and that's see, like the seat of power, right? Yeah. So you see all the powerful people there, uh, the people in government or the people uh, that own a fucking tire shop that sell tires to the coalition, you know, and they're burning like how many billions of dollars have gone through Afghanistan. So that was, um, that was, like I said, a big kick in the ass because, or, you know, in Kandahar, we're, we're fighting the bad guys, and it was like something that we could see what we we're helping for. Yeah. And then go up to Kabul and go, man, we're here all for money. That's what we're here for. Ian, when, uh, when did you first realize that uh, you had PTSD? Uh, it was uh, when I got home, uh, my first tour. Uh, I got home in, what, I got home in August 2006. Um, yeah, it was... Knew right away, um, there's something not right. You know, it took a little longer time because we're stubborn, um, you know, to kind of step forward to say there's something wrong. And I and I wouldn't admit to it. I just kept trying to mask it with, uh, say, alcohol. Um, taking every task I could, you know, courses, uh, everything I could, you know, just to try to mask it because my performance at work didn't drop off. My performance at work climbed and my performance at home dropped off right it was the the great military lie that so many guys do uh but yeah that's when i realized realized it and uh you know i just kept lying to myself though like ah you're fine you're fine you're fine but knowing that i'm not fine i need to talk to somebody and um it was probably a year later i think it was uh, march 2009 was when it was bad because uh, that was a year anniversary from Jay Boys being killed. That's right. Uh, and, it, and it hit me like a fucking baseball bat the next day, you know, a, a year later. And I was like, holy shit, you know, I knew things weren't great in 06. Things weren't great when I come home in 08. And it was like kind of like that, you know, almost at three years to the day of the first real combat I was in in 2006. And then, you know, 2008, Jay gets killed. And then 2009, I'm sitting on the corner of my bed crying. Like, I don't know what's wrong with me. Who did you first tell when you figured when you I had was, PTSD? Yeah. When I was sick? Um, definitely would have been my wife yeah. um, and my dad. So I remember sitting on my deck in 2008. 
when I got home, having a beer with my dad, and then I just kind of broke down. And because uh, again, everything I try to hide everything from everybody about what we did. Even in 2006, um, if you weren't there, I didn't want to really say much, right? Because yeah, that's just the way I am, and, and you know, that mm-hmm. kind of quiet professional. And um, how'd your dad react? He he knew he was he was upset because there's nothing he could do. Yeah, right? I had the so exact like, same experience I, in the know, car it, with my dad, telling him, yeah. and all he got was angry, not at me, yeah. obviously. So I yeah. I feel that I feel that hard. It feels like uh, when I told my dad, my my dad's heart was broken. Yeah, and now me being a father, if my son came to me with the same thing, I'd have the same reaction. My dad was quiet. Um, it is completely heartbroken that, uh, I had to go through that stuff. Again, what I was saying, like trying to prevent everybody from kind of knowing what was going on. Cause like my mom had no clue, uh, what we did. Mm. Um, no one had a clue. And then when, when Jay was killed, um, when they had his wake in Shiloh, uh, in 2008, um, Bree and my father went, um, to the wake and Nick Grimshaw was there and, you know, some other guys that we, you know, our crew that were still in Canada, uh, we're obviously at the wake and there was a whole lot of stuff that was said. And I got a lot of looks when I come home, um, on my HLTA. Cause that, you know, that would happen. Jay was killed before my HLTA. I come home from HLTA and I'm just kind of getting like some strange looks from like my wife and my dad and no one really said anything until I came like home, home. And it was like, we had no clue that this is the kind of shit you guys were dealing with. This is the kind of stuff you, you, you actually did, you know, with the amount of uh, combat that, uh, that we were in, um, you know, the stuff that happened and all those different experiences. And it was just like, you know, just trying to, I don't know, keep everything kind of closed in and, and, um, you know, deal with it that way. There's, there's times where I, I wish I was still able to do that. Not everything kind of got out in the open, um, but it's out there, and uh, yeah, it was tough, man. Makes you feel very vulnerable, eh? A hundred percent. Now, now I don't really care. Hmm. You know, I don't really care what people think of me anymore. Where before, I was like, you know, I want to be accepted, and I want, you know, I want people to. I don't know. It's weird. I, I shouldn't say I don't care what other people think. Just for the longest time, I didn't want to say a lot of stuff because I didn't want to be labeled. Yeah. And then as, as time has gone on, I've been much more open with it. With being open with it, even after the tours, because I was pretty open. I listened to a lot of guys, and my door was like a revolving door at my house. Like in, in when I, you know, because everybody, all my friends would come over, constantly at any given time of the day or night just to talk it's true so i was like double-hatted because no one knew i was suffering so i'd have say dm come over you know um uh, jp all these other guys just use initials you know coming over to kind of spill their guts you know to come over and and talk about what they're going through because there's a lot of guys struggling when we come home a ton of guys and um I just kept it bottled up and I would just be that good friend, that good, good set of ears. And I just sit there and listen to what they'd have to say. And it'd go on for hours and it happened fucking daily, man. And, um, I just never said what I was going through because I didn't want 
it to be about me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like uh, they came over to discuss what's going on with them personally. And I didn't want it to, you know, like, well, this go, well, this is what's happening to me. You know, and I, I didn't want to be that one upmanship. No. So it took, it took a long time for a couple of my close, close friends knew that I was hurting, but didn't know the extent I was hurting. It was, uh, in 2011 is where I went and got help. And it was from, uh, the, my gunner or, you know, part of the crew from 2006 is the one that, uh, um, Bree reached out to him and he got a hold of me and kind of laid the cards on the table. Um, that's when I was still posted to Ottawa and said, here's the deal, man, this is what you're going to do. And this is your timeline. And if you don't do it, I'm fucking doing something. You know, I'll I'll phone whoever I have to call. Um, you know, I'll call the Mounties on you. I don't care. I'll you're you're going to get help. And a couple of days later, I made that um, I made that step in and went and got help. I was really skeptical about getting help because um, I talked you know a few minutes ago about that uh, kind of that moment where I knew there's something wrong and say waking up the morning after Regiment Day in 2009. Uh, fucking brokenhearted and um, not showing up to work in the morning and just driving straight to uh, mental health on the base and kind of like, here, here I am. Shit's going on. Went and talked to somebody and um, they never called me back. No. They never called me back. They never, nothing, man. I went there. I talked to this one guy for a couple hours and spilled, spilled my guts to him in 2009. And, uh, Nothing was done. It was like, okay, well, we'll get you set up with more appointments and we'll, we'll, we'll get to the bottom of this and start moving forward. And uh, I never got a call back. So making that another walk into that, into that building, but in Ottawa two hours, two years later, was uh, extremely tough. And uh, I'm proud that I never gave up. And you got what you needed in Ottawa? Like you got a, the and ball I, rolling? And, and I did, yeah. Like they were uh, awesome in Ottawa. And, you know, and then I was posted back to... Um, back to the battalion and then uh you know i started going to the uh, osis center in in uh winnipeg in 2013 which was you know absolutely amazing getting in with them and good and uh, they've been a great help you know i can't uh you know they've had a lot of you know a lot of a lot of stuff in the news and shit like that about uh you know mental health and treatment and everything else is you know it's not perfect but it, the onus is on the members as well yeah right it, it, the onus is on you to um to make that step right you can't force somebody to make a step but you you it's got to go on the on the member right to, to walk in that door and and uh it's on us as friends as brothers to uh, be there for somebody else right i'm not gonna push you through the door but i'm gonna hold your hand that's right you know and it's gonna take time but we're gonna get we're gonna get there and we're gonna get what we need to do to you know get your life it's it's unreal to me that you had a brother tell you needed help you finally got your shit together walked through the door the first time and you still fell through the fucking cracks yeah that's unbelievable to me yeah there's a lot of um i don't know whatever happened with that but when i've mentioned that a few times to others you know people that want to listen they're just fucking absolutely blown away that i was blown off you know the first time i walked in the door like there's uh, a lot of people 
that were complete in disbelief until they've done a little bit more research on, say, the facility in Shiloh and what was going on between, you know, not to pick on Shiloh. That's where I was stationed. Um, and that was what was going on, right? It was no secret between, say, 2006 and 2009 that they had a major problem at the uh, mental health clinic. And again, I fell through the cracks. Um, so again, I'm not pointing fingers, but I'd like to know how many other people fell through the cracks. Oh, I'd like to also know is how many friends I have in the ground because they fell through the cracks. Yeah. And that's something that, you know, it doesn't haunt me, but it upsets me. Right. It's like, well, who else that's made that ultimate decision to take their own life has been pushed away by the people that are supposed to help. Yeah. Or, you know, so that's, that's one of the things that, that upsets me, right? Because, you know, we've lost a lot of friends in, in combat, you know, lost a lot of uh, soldiers, but we lost a lot of guys at home. And it's, it's just, it doesn't make sense, you know, like it, to, for someone to get to that point in their life where that's the only way out, it, it's, it, it's, you know, it's, it's sad and it, uh, it breaks my heart. Yeah. You know, it breaks my heart to know that I have friends uh, every day that are, are uh, you know, contemplating, uh, you know, maybe taking their own lives yeah. um, because they don't know where else to go. And then you hear stories like me, you know, where I was turned away and I could have been one of those guys. Yeah. And it wasn't even you know, but, 2000 or earlier. We're talking about, you know, this, it's established yeah. that PTSD yeah. is a thing that people are going through. It's not... Uh, stigmatized like it was before that. Exactly, but the crazy train, right? Right. How has PTSD kind of changed your life? How has how has it affected, let's say, like your relationships, your sleep, you know, your energy, you know, how you look at the world and your passions, you know? Well, it's PTSD has affected absolutely everything in my life, um, and not all, and not all of it's bad. Yeah, like what does a bad day look like then? A, a bad day for me is I just kind of close off. Yeah. Um, I don't want to talk to others. I don't, you know, I'll even not want to talk to close friends. Um, I just want to be completely left alone and, and stew and sit and think and overthink and overthink. Like that's that's a bad day for me. Um, Sleep-wise, I... I, my sleep's still fucked. Like I, you know, last night I got like three hours of sleep. Um, but I've learned a lot more about myself yeah. and I, I think I've actually blossomed into a better person. So like, I, your, uh, is your energy like when, when you're having a bad, when you're bad day, your energy is quite low. Like you're not. Feeling... Oh yeah. Well, yeah. My energy is quite low. Like I'll drag myself out of bed. I haven't had a day where I've just laid in bed. Like I, I try to, set little goals every day right like the thing that keeps me alive and it sucks man it's i got a seven-year-old he keeps me alive yeah if that little guy knew how much responsibility he had on his hands i don't know what he would do man. because <laughs> that that little shit keeps me um yeah he, he, he keeps me level and he keeps me alive right because i know getting him ready for school every morning right okay you know bree has gone to work i gotta get him breakfast i gotta make sure that he's dressed i gotta make sure he brushes his teeth that he's got everything and then i you know take him to school so that's like the thing that kind of keeps me going is is mason and um you know it's a lot of pressure to put on a seven-year-old but he doesn't know that yet <laughs> yeah. but uh 
that's what when I said when I blossomed into a better person, I, I found myself really jaded for a long time. I was very judgmental on others. I didn't mean to be, but I was. You know, I looked down at a lot of other people, you know, and, and uh, I was just kind of like that asshole that was trying to shield myself. You know, mm. instead of admitting that I'm sad or broken, I'll just lash out at other people and be a fucking dick. And I'll feel better about myself by making fun of some overweight person at McDonald's, grabbing three Big Macs and, uh, you know, Diet Coke. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah. It, it's really, uh, it's, it's really been, you know, that, that aspect of things. I, I, I think it's actually, it's helped me become a, a better person and a more understanding individual and have more uh, empathy for others. What, what does a good day look like? Oh, good day is, uh, you know, I'm out and about. I'm, you know, like today, today's a great day. You know, sitting here and I'm talking to two good friends, um, you know, sunshine and, uh, I've got nothing to worry about. How do you feel you now? Know, it's like generally, great. I feel pretty good, you know, especially, especially after the surgery. Cause that's another thing that I could go on about the release, right? I was released for, for PTSD. Yeah. However, I've had a bad back and a bad hip and it's gone on for years. And I've had MRIs where, you know, just before I was released from the game forces, they did an MRI on my back and there's like four, I don't know, uh, degenerate disc disease. So I got four bad discs and I have two vertebrae that I broke at some point. Jesus. <laughs> they don't know when. So, you know, they're healed obviously, but they're like, man, you had two broken vertebrae. When did you do this? I'm like, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. And then, you know, then I, uh, I couldn't find a doctor in Brandon. That's another very frustrating thing about getting out. Right. It's, yeah. is um, trying to find um, a doctor. Uh, Brandon is Brandon. Uh, they hate the military. Uh, <laughs> literally, literally, literally um, went to Bree's family doctor or Mason's doctor. And I'm like, yeah, I'm out of the army now and I, I need a doctor. And he's like, okay, uh, you're a veteran, right? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, yeah, you, you in Afghanistan? I'm like, yeah. They go, oh, I won't take you. No, I'm, I won't take you as a patient. Jesus. Yeah, I went to another doctor. Wouldn't take me as a patient. That's doesn't want to deal with don't want to deal with veterans affairs paperwork and don't want to deal with uh, personal and that one doctor with Bree, um, maybe he comes from a different he comes from a different place and uh, sure. it was a uh, a personal issue that um, I was in Afghanistan fighting fighting people yep you know again it's his that's his right that's Canada you got that right to to say yay or nay uh, so I can't fault him for that. But again, it was like another kick, right? It's like, okay, no one wants to even deal with my health problem. So long story short, you know, I've been going to the OSA Center in Winnipeg, uh, seeing my psychologist, and I'm like, fuck, man, I'm like, I'm in the hurt locker. I'm like, my body's falling apart. I can't find a doctor anywhere. And he's like, well, come with me downstairs. There's an awesome, awesome nurse, nurse practitioner downstairs that she's will take you on. That's awesome. So then he took me downstairs, and I met with the probably the most amazing woman besides my mother and my wife um, <laughs> that took care of me. And I started seeing her at the end of October and um, in May I had hip surgery. So that's how fast things went for me. Seeing her, she got a bunch of tests ordered up. I had an MRI and a hip aspiration in February and like May 3rd, I had a total hip replacement at 40 years old. 
And the surgeon's like, oh, my God, man, that was fucking terrible. Like, how did you walk in here? Like, mm. on my feet? It's like, how? It's <laughs> like, did, like did, were you taking anything for pain? I'm like, no, no, I wasn't taking anything. Just drinking lots of water and changing my socks. And then, <laughs> <laughs> like, holy fuck, man. So, anyways, like I said, I got the hip done, and uh, I feel like a new man. And um, I'm just thinking maybe this is that last, that last piece, you know, of the puzzle that kind of put me back together. Yeah. You know, there's always going to be a couple pieces that are, you know, a little crooked or you might have to pound them in with your fist to make them fit, you know, those corner pieces. That's but, right. But uh, I'm thinking, I think this might be the last piece. Same with, with school. Um, we had to do a lot of volunteering. You know, that was part of the curriculum. I volunteered well over 200 hours at the community center just around the corner from my house. And uh, it gave me such a purpose just to volunteer, you know, to have the rink open for the kids to go play it just gave me a real sense of purpose of, of that volunteering stuff so i don't know if i would have been big into volunteering without going on this course that i was on you know but now that i volunteered with that now i i just want i want to do more volunteering to kind of give back and you know i believe in community and i believe in you know i believe in something higher i'm not a religious man but yeah you know what i mean What motivates you to succeed? And I, I think I know the answer to this, but I definitely don't want to put words in your mouth. Uh, my motivation to succeed is, is obviously my son yeah. uh, and the people around me. Um, and I want to see, I don't know, my community, my town, my country. I, I want to see things do better. I, I want to see the end of that, right? Because I guess in service, like we all served, right? And we have that sense of service yeah. and um i want to help others man like that's kind of what draw me maybe towards the you know that line of you know maybe law enforcement or social work or something like that i want to help i want to give back because i don't want anybody else to have to go through the shit i went through yeah i really at the at the end of the day and i don't like that term but i'll use it um I don't want other people to have to suffer and I don't want other people to feel that they're alone. And I don't want, uh, kids to go to bed, uh, or wake up in the morning and, and know that their, uh, their father took their life because of shit that happened in war, you know? And, uh, it, it just, it can't happen. It can't happen anymore. You know, I'm getting emotional thinking about it. And, really talking with with my son right like talking to mason and you know he knows how hurt i've been you know with my hip and stuff and i haven't been able to do all the things that i love to do with him because i've been so in so much pain and, and you know with the movement and everything like that and he would say to me every day he'd be like because you had to go to that stupid war you're hurt you went to the, you went to stupid war and now you're hurt why, why did you have to go to the war, Dad? Why did you have to go there and get hurt? So it kind of rides on you, right? He's seven years old. Like, yeah. he gets it, you know? You know so, well, you're raising a pretty cool boy, man. I mean, yeah, he's, uh, he's pretty special. We got another one on the way. Congratulations. Uh, in, congratulations. in September, so we're, we're pretty pumped. and you know, I'm pretty excited just to, just to keep moving forward, man. And that's my, that's my motivation is to, to give back and, and to help out anybody I could help if I can save one life man I've done my job that's amazing man you know if I can if I can save one person I, I, I've, I've done everything I could 
we got one last question for you. Sure, man. And uh, you can hang out afterwards. We can mm-hmm. chat for a little bit. Laura's been here listening the whole time. I'm sure she wants to say hello. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Are you a member of the Legion? No, I'm not. Why? Um, the Legion, I'd say the Legion and Brandon has left a bad taste in my mouth. Um, I think you were actually with us, Matt, in, uh, I think it was 08. We went over there and um, they were dying for membership. Yep. It was Remembrance Day. So a bunch of us signed up for... Uh, for uh, member membership to keep that legion alive, and um, there is an issue with the number three legion. Um, it's well known through the western area that uh, there's a real serious problem in, in Brandon, for for instance, with the legion. And uh, I just didn't feel uh, we didn't feel welcome there at all. Um, you know, we we're young veterans, and you know we're hanging around like you know they're all Cold War s- soldiers, which is fine. You know, that's what happened back then. And we just didn't feel welcome there. I feel more welcome at the Army-Navy Air Force Club. Like, that's where I feel welcome. You mm-hmm. can walk in there. You can go for a beer, play pool or whatever. And you just feel welcome there. And Like, the Legion is literally a two-minute walk from my house. And I, I don't go there. I don't feel welcome there. Yeah, there seems um, to be a pattern of this. There's a huge problem. Yeah. Dude, thanks so much for doing yeah, this with thank us, thank you, Ian. We really appreciate yeah, man, it. It's great. I, hopefully I didn't bore you guys too much. No. You did not bore us. And that's it for this podcast. Thanks again to Sergeant Tate for joining us today. Tune in to the next podcast where we're going to have my friend, Andre Guantanamo. Uh, we served together in Afghanistan for a few months, and uh, we'll be interviewing him and his experiences in, in outside the military. And if you're liking the podcast, why don't you give us a like on Facebook at VeteranX or catch us online at VeteranX.ca.